just when I think I've got Jesus pretty well figured out, angry, scary Jesus shows up. Throughout the gospel stories, Jesus is often challenging. Uh, He makes commands like, if someone slaps your face, don't slap them back. Turn and offer them the other side of your face. Or he'll say things like, uh, not only love your neighbor, but love your enemies as well. Those things are challenging to anyone who has a sense of self-esteem or justice. But angry, scary Jesus is a whole different category. He says things like, unless you repent, you shall perish. Or tells stories where the landowner says things like, cut down that waste of a space tree. Considering also that angry, scary Jesus has miraculous powers, the ability, say, to tell a, stream, uh, tell a storm, calm, and it will. An angry Jesus is a scary Jesus. And yet this is the same guy who blesses little kids, who tells us to look at the lilies of the fields. The same one who tells stories about searching for a lost, lonely sheep. The same Jesus who welcomes people on whom everyone else turns their back, who cries when he sees his, those he loves in grief. Now, as much as I prefer the lily-loving Jesus, if we truly want to be disciples, we have to listen to everything that Jesus teaches. And we, we must learn from every story about him and that he tells, not just pick and choose the ones that we like and are comfortable with. And as we look at this particular story, I think we must remember that the same Jesus whose heart breaks for human beings in pain is also the same Jesus who warns human beings to repent. And since we know that at heart Jesus is love itself, we need to ask why Jesus seems so severe in this story. As we do, I believe that we'll see that he's as severe as he is because he has an urgency about his message that he's trying to communicate. And I believe that urgent message is along the lines of we may not know when we are going to die, but we do know we all will die. Therefore, be who we want to be and live how we want to live while the opportunity is still available. Jesus, in this story, is dealing with people who have been taught that bad things happen to bad people. It's a direct correlation. Therefore, if something bad has happened to a person, then they must have done something bad. 
Even further, if something really bad has happened to a person, then they must have done something really bad. That's why Jesus says to this group of people who have come to tell him about this gruesome uh, murder of some Galileans, he responds to them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? If they were honest and they got a chance to, to answer him, they probably would say, yeah. That's why such a horrible thing happened to him, because they were worse sinners. And then Jesus challenges, list, challenges his listeners even further with the story of this other horrible accident, or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? And again, if they had the chance to answer and they answered honestly, they would have probably said yes, because that's what they had been taught. We heard a modern U.S. evangelical version of this after 9-11. Jerry Falwell on uh, Pat Robertson's show said, I quote, I really believe that the pagans and the abortionists and the feminists and the, guys, uh, the gays and the lesbians who are actively trying to make that an alternative lifestyle, the ACLU, the people for the American way, all of them who have tried to secularize America, I point the finger in their face and say, you helped this happen. Again, the focus of, of that and the focus of this belief is on judging the reason something happened to others, to someone else, and concluding that if it was bad, it was because they were bad. But the answer that Jesus gives to his own question, changes the focus entirely. Most directly, Jesus says, no, the Galileans were not worse sinners than the other Galileans. He says, no, the 18 who died in the tower collapse were not more guilty than the others in Jerusalem. Jesus doesn't even bother saying, why did those things happen? Instead, he switches the focus of the judgment of his audience onto themselves. In response to both situation, situations, Jesus points to each of his followers saying, unless you repent, the same will happen to you. Now, that's actually literally what he says. The NIV translates it this way, um, unless you repent, you too will all perish. But Jesus is confronting them much more directly, and he is saying, unless you repent, literally, it's unless you repent, the same thing will happen to you. And that's important because his listeners are forced to ask themselves the question, why should I suffer the same fate as those horrible sinners? Daryl Bach, a professor at Dallas, uh, has a great comment on this. He says, I really, uh, he says, Jesus deflects the question about the degree of sin 
because it distracts from the real question, the presence of sin, no matter what its form. Often we compare sinners so that we may excuse ourselves as not being as bad as them. Jesus wants no such escape from responsibility here. So Jesus changes the import of the question. The reason such events are so tragic is that they expose our mortality. Death exists in a fallen world, and nothing exposes our mortality more than when death comes suddenly and unexpectedly, cutting short a life that had the potential to be much fuller. But Jesus argues that what should be contemplated is not the cutting short of these particular lives, but that all life terminates. We never know how or when our lives will end, but we do know all our lives will end. And so given that it could happen anywhere, anytime, in any number of ways, Jesus encourages us, get right with God now while you still have opportunity. And that is why Jesus is so severe. He's so urgent. He is talking about matters of literal life and death. He's talking about the conditions of our souls. Jesus is angry because so many people are focused on the wrong things the sins of others, and judging others, when what we need to be focused on is our own sin and getting ourselves right with God. Jesus sounds scary because he's telling the truth. Our sins have consequences, both for ourselves and for others. We want to be told that everything is fine, but the truth is it might not be unless we are right with God unless we open ourselves to God's embrace and change our lives. Again, listen to that New Testament passage. He begins by saying, you know, this church thinks that they have it all together because they're rich. And so that was another thing. If you're rich, then you must, if good things have happened to you, that's the flip side of if bad things happen to bad people, good things happen to good people. So if you're rich, you must be really good. But he's saying that's not it at all. You don't realize the true condition of your souls. So come to me, he says. In fact, those, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Not all things that happen to people are God's rebuke or discipline, but some of the things that happen in our lives are, are opportunities for us to wake up. And he says, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. Anyone who has ears to hear, he says, let them hear. Daryl Bach adds the following. Repentance is not an emotion or a mental assent to a proposition. It is a reorientation to a new life. To repent is not merely to regret things we have done or to apologize for them or to recognize a wrong has been committed. To repent is to agree that a change of life is necessary 
and then respond accordingly. Those who repent of their sin, and this is the part I love, those who repent of their sin receive the gift of life. It's not about the repentance. It's about finding the new life, the fullness in God. Several years ago, I saw a film entitled As It Is in Heaven. The film tells a story of uh, this great symphony conductor who is from this small rural town in the far north of Sweden. It's a Swedish film. And in the opening scenes, he's yelling at the musicians. He's belittling them. He's in a rage almost all of the time. And then something happens. He has a health crisis of some sort, and he retreats to his hometown in the far north of Sweden. And in flashbacks, we see him as a young boy in that town, but there are a bunch of young boys who are yelling at him and belittling him. And then coming back to present time, the, the local pastor of his hometown uh, somehow convinces him to take over directing the church choir. Uh, this great symphony conductor and con- directing this small church choir. And this group is a motley group. But over time, they have as much positive impact on him as he has on them. Now, here's where it takes an interesting turn. In the closing scene of the movie, this choir is at a competition, a choir competition in Innsbruck. And they are, they're standing on these risers in rows, ready for their, their part, and they're wearing just the same clothes that they wear all the time. And then it, you see out in the audience, it, it looks like blocks of color, because all these other choirs that are in the competition all have matching uniforms and outfits. And they're standing up there looking as motley as ever, and, and the director's not there. And you see the, the nervousness begin, and you know people are starting, and people in the audience are starting to look around, and where's the choir director? Well, the choir director is actually on, slumped on a tile floor in a bathroom, bleeding from a head wound. He had slipped and he had cracked his skull against the porcelain sink. And he's lying there trying to stop this bleeding with some paper towels, but nobody knows he's there. So his body, his, his life is literally pouring out of him as everyone else is in the auditorium. Going back to the auditorium, the, the anxiety has just filled the, the whole space and the tension is profound and the choir doesn't know what to do. And then one young man in the choir who has trouble connecting with other human beings, he can't, he doesn't know what to do with his nervousness. And so he just starts to sing one note as loudly as he can, one note. And then the other choir members of his choir start to sing single notes in harmony. And they, they are making this beautiful sound, just this choir. But then one man from one of the other choirs in the audience stands up 
And he starts singing this one note. It's this deep bass note, and it's this. He joins in making this harmony. No words. It's all just this beautiful music and harmony. And then slowly, others in these other choirs in the auditorium start standing up and joining in this amazing. It's mesmerizing and amazing at the same time. This beautiful harmony. The final scene is back on the conductor, slumped in the bathroom, literally his life ebbing away. And just before he, he loses his life, he actually hears the music through a speaker in the, the, the bathroom. He hears this beautiful harmony coming from the auditorium and he smiles and then he's gone and the very last image in this film is of him as an uh, adult and his childhood self embracing in a field in his hometown and there's just this beautiful sense of reconciliation this man has, has found the person that he wanted to be all his life before it was too late. Not very much before, but before it was too late. He became the person he wanted to be, reconciled with his community and reconciled with God. Now remember, our story started in Luke when angry, scary Jesus showed up. Well, gracious Jesus shows up at the very end. Even after he said all he's said about uh, the, the people before him and their own sin, uh, even as he's telling this parable, when the, the landowner wants to get rid of this worthless tree, it's been three years, it's supposed to bear fruit, it hasn't, cut it down, and yet the gardener says to the landowner, leave it alone for one more year. I'll dig around it, I'll fertilize it, and then if it bears fruit, great. If not, then do what you need to do. But even in the midst of Christ's urgency, there's always a note of hope, always. We don't know when our lives will end or how, but we know all of our lives will end. So let us be now who we truly want to be, and let us live now how we truly want to live, while we still have opportunity. Amen?